Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Ahern, and in today's episode, I will be interviewing Shannon Heyman and Christopher McCudden, co-authors of Rise of the Machines, Artificial Intelligence, and the Clinical Laboratory. Dr. Heyman is the Vice Chair for Computational Pathology and Director of Mass Spectrometry at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago and an Associate Professor of Pathology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. McCudden is the Vice Chair for the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of Ottawa and a Clinical Biochemist in the Division of Biochemistry at the Ottawa Hospital. In our interview today, we discuss the future of artificial intelligence within the context of clinical laboratories. We don't often realize it, but labs are at the heart of most hospitals. They process tox screens, blood samples, tissue biopsies, urine samples, and so much more. Most patients and even physicians are relatively unfamiliar with the daily happenings in a clinical laboratory, so stay tuned for your inside peek. Dr. Heyman and Dr. McCudden, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. Pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. This is actually the first time on our podcast that we've had uh, two guests, so it's a very special episode today. Um, we'll start with we'll start with you, Dr. Heyman, and 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 then Dr. McCudden. I'll be asking the same question of you afterwards. Can you both tell us about your paths um, and how you came to focus on the topic of artificial intelligence in the clinical laboratory? Yeah, you know, I think my path to analytics really started when I became a clinical lab director. So just for context. Um, in case folks don't know, you know, clinical laboratories take in samples from patients and we run ordered tests and then report those results to the treatment team. And and today we're even reporting to patients. So we're providing this vital service to clinical care and we do so under these strict federal and even sometimes state regulations. So as a lab director, I need to know what's going on in our lab and, um, you know, that we're in compliance if we have any areas where we need to make improvements or you know, if, if we've implemented some type of corrective action, is it working? And then we have to make business and clinical uh, service decisions. So getting the necessary data to do that and doing these analyses seems like it should be really straightforward, but it was actually a continuous struggle to do this. And the processes that we were using weren't robust and they weren't what I would call reproducible. So I felt that there had to be a better way. Um, and Chris and I have these friends who are also our colleagues that are named Steve Master and Dan Holmes, both of which are, are clinical pathologists. And they were far ahead of me in realizing that data science type skills would be really useful to clinical lab directors. Um, and I'm sure as he'll describe, Chris was more like them than like me on this path to enlightenment. Um, But in 2015, I was trying to think back of when this was, but in 2015, Dan and Steve started teaching this course in the R programming language, and it was called Breaking Up with Excel, A Newbie's Guide to the R Programming Language. And so I went to that inaugural course, and it was really a turning point for me. So I was very excited. I could recognize the potential of, you know, what these skills would bring and how I could apply them to challenges I was facing. And so I came back to work and I just started applying them to various problems in the lab. Um, And, you know, like most things, when you learn how to do something that makes things faster or more efficient or automates it, people like really think you're some kind of magician, right? (laughs) Like it's gaining all this, you know, people are very excited about it. And so I just kept 
kind of working away like that um, on my own problems in my own lab um, and then started branching out to help other lab directors who had similar problems. And so then it became more of a department-wide um, effort. And so I convinced my department chair in the institution that we needed this idea of lab analytics or what we called computational pathology was something that we needed to really focus on and that I could lead it. And so um, because I felt like I needed to continue to build my skills and give myself some more credibility, I actually decided to pursue a master's in predictive analytics from Northwestern, um, which for me was a really great decision. So it came with a lot of work. It took me three years to do it. I've just actually finished it up. Um, but it really accelerated my learning in several facets of data science. Um, and it, because it wasn't just focused on healthcare. Um, so, you know, there are several industries that are farther along um, in this whole AI machine learning data science kind of realm than healthcare is. So I was learning about a lot of things that I probably otherwise would not have learned. Um, and it also forced me to learn skills that I didn't even realize I needed to know or would be useful. Um, so it was a very, very great endeavor for me. Um, and I'm routinely using those skills. Um, and we've, we've really been able to transform our department. So, you know, one of the things I try to do then is, is to educate and encourage others. And this was one of the efforts for Chris and I to write this review article was, you know, how do we raise awareness among our peers and educate them about their potential roles in, in AI and lab medicine? And I'll follow that up with, do you see, you've talked about within your own department, these changes, do you see this being applicable to any other departments? Yeah, um, I do. I actually think, you know, the stuff that Chris and I laid out in the article where, you know, we have a whole section where we talk about um, the role for laboratorians in, in AI. And I mean, I personally think this we anybody could apply that to any specialty um because i don't know you know if you agree or not i'm sure you probably think the same but you know lab medicine just happens to be a specific specialty that has access to a lot of data we generate a lot of data and we make a lot of decisions that you know can be informed and driven by data um and so you know some specialties may be better suited for it than others but I really strongly feel that, you know, for AI and machine learning applications to, you know, be reproducible and reliable and practical, meaning that they, you know, are sustainable and useful in clinical care, then people from all specialties need to be involved in their development and evaluation in some form or another. That's fantastic. And, and Dr. McCutton, you're nodding your head. So I see, I see that you've got opinions on this, but you also have a background in pathology and laboratory medicine. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Sure. I'll just make a quick comment. I totally agree with what Shannon said in the form of, you know, every specialty uses lab data, even, even imaging is going to order at least a creatinine to see whether someone can clear that contrast dye. So because we have that knowledge of all the data that everyone else is using, having us involved in some capacity might be useful. You know, when we change instruments, people might not know that there's differences in lab values over time. So I think we bring value as subject matter experts, if not as you know, machine learning experts, as the case may be. So my journey into um, sort of machine learning started earlier, it started as a fellow. So just as background, we, you know, there, there's a number of PhDs in, in medicine and we're kind of a, a different different breed than a lot of people, but we go through similar trainings. So rather than going to medical school, such as you're doing, we'll go to graduate school and you'll do a PhD, maybe a postdoc or two, 
I did a couple postdocs before I got into a clinical fellowship program. So then you go and you train in a hospital along with uh, typically pathologists, um, such as uh, the colleagues that Shannon mentioned earlier. So then you get that, you learn the clinical medicine, you have this background of the analytical side. Anyway, as a fellow, I, uh, we had this nomogram that we used to use for identifying uh, patients with, you know, they had hyperparathyroidism, secondary hyperparathyroidism, hypoparathyroidism. And uh, someone was born of, I guess, uh, laziness. I looked at this, we'd look at this piece of paper when you plot them, I thought, oh, there must be a better way. I spent a lot of time as a graduate student trying to automate things. So I thought, well, I know that there's such a thing as, you know, algorithms and things. So maybe I can develop an algorithm to replace this, you know, not that labor intensive, but I was, I guess I wanted to just kind of replace and automate it. So I, I managed to get a small amount of funding and I, uh, there's a biostatistics uh, core. At, this was at the uh, university of North Carolina where I trained um, at the time. And uh, I said, well, rather than doing this analysis for me, I, I want you to teach me how to do it. And they introduced me to this weird thing called R, the statistical programming language. I thought was weird at the time. And, uh, I got to use it. You know, initially, they had my data in there, and I started off just plugging in different data to the same what looked like a complicated algorithm. Um, you know, the interfaces weren't as good as they are now. There's R Studio, and there's other other ways to use it, but it was kind of command line stuff, which I wasn't super familiar with at the time, and developed a lot of skills. Fast forward a few years later, I moved up to Canada. I'm in Ottawa now, and a colleague of mine, um, he. Uh, he also was kind of like-minded, this guy, Matthew Henderson. And so we worked together, like-minded, get, really getting into machine learning. And he was in R and things like that. So we, we worked closely together and it kind of really just, you know, kind of exploded from there. Just our, our interest in the, all that data that we have access to. It's kind of, a, you know, a goldmine, as Shannon pointed out. I love that you took the initiative to learn R. That That's, I think, for a lot of people coming from the clinical side of things that can be really intimidating. How, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, it's a good point. So I, I joked, there was a lot of kind of sweaty, sweaty nights in the sense that I didn't have a lot of great resources to learn this online. You know, 15 years ago, there wasn't a ton of things to learn. So it was, you know, you've got your laptop screaming away in your lap, you know, your lap as you're trying to just code. And it was, it was at night because your, your day job gets in the way. So you've got this there and you're just kind of coding and, and figuring out the hard way. I do have uh, in, in my bookshelf, these the books with those weird creatures on them from uh, O'Reilly Media. So I've used a number of those to, uh, to learn from as well. I think learning now, people shouldn't be intimidated. Search the internet for, I want to learn how to do R. There's fantastic resources in there, or I want to learn Python, or I want to learn machine learning. So I think it's gotten easier. I think Shannon probably did it the right way, getting formal training, because you get a, a full exposure, whereas I could go down a rabbit hole and get stuck on things, um, doing it kind of the hard way. You you gain experience and you have those kind of, you know, win moments where you figure something out and it can be very satisfying, but uh, don't be intimidated to learn something new. I think it's easier than ever. I think something cool about kind of your guys's background and the fact that the two of you are working together is that you do come from very different backgrounds, especially as it relates to artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, uh, Dr. Heyman, you being, you know, formally educated, Dr. McCudden, you being self-taught. Um, another thing I kind of want to touch on, Dr. Heyman, this is a question for you. Um, you're also doing work with mass spectrometry, and I think that's really interesting. I think a lot of people hear that and they think, uh, 
biochemistry, organic chemistry, or you know their undergraduate course where they were first exposed to mass spec. Um, but uh, you know you've kind of got the clinical applications going. So uh, what's what's your work currently, and uh, do you see artificial intelligence or machine learning augmenting that work in the future? Yeah. So you know the the fundamentals that that you're talking about that folks learn. Uh, those are still at play, and those are the things we leverage for clinical assays. So, you know, we use mass spectrometry uh, in, in clinical labs as ways to measure analytes in, in various patient samples. And some of the most commonly um, applied methods are things like measuring drug compounds, whether those be illicit ones or prescribed ones. You know, patients who have uh, organ transplants, they're immunosuppressed. And so, you know, they, we need to monitor their immunosuppression drug levels over time so that any adjustments can be made. Um, the other big method, um, another big area of application is in particularly in pediatrics where I work at a children's hospital in our lab um, is in newborn screening follow-up. So, you know, mass spectrometry, because it allows people to measure hundreds of metabolites in very small samples that you can collect from a newborn heel on one of those little filter paper cards, right? Um, that really opened up the, the field of newborn screening. And so we still leverage those types of um, technologies today. And if kids are identified um, on newborn screening as having one of these potentially uh, serious but treatable disorders, they come, because that's a screening test, they come for a confirmation test. And so we then use mass spectrometry, whether that be gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, or liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry, to confirm those diagnoses. And so what happens in those cases um, is that often mass spectrometry tests are measuring lots of analytes simultaneously. So they're putting out a profile of results, which then requires someone to actually look at the output and you know, assess it for a number of quality checks so that we know that we're reporting an accurate result. And then it further, and that's usually done at like a technologist level, that's done by the people who are typically running the, the um, samples. And then beyond that, once you get out of, you, know, you have an accurate set of results, it's up to someone else, usually a director level person, and often someone with uh, specific medical training to then look at that profile and interpret it in the context of disease. And so, you know, you're looking to see like, does this person have PKU? Does this person have, you know, a metabolic disorder where they've got a disruption in, you know, the Krebs cycle. So all of these things that like not only mass spectrometry, but that medical students are learning about all these metabolic pathways, those are very important. And we interrogate those with mass spectrometry. So both this concept of, you know, having um, people apply multiple quality rules, which are often numerically based um, to determine if, you know, a result is valid or not, as well as people looking for profiles in highly complex and interrelated data. These are tasks that are very well suited for machine learning. And so those are two of the kinds of examples that I can talk about where I think those are nice applications for machine learning in mass spec labs. And in you know, the article we talk about, there have been some uh, you know, research reports really showing promise for doing that. The actual implementation of those things is not very widespread at this point, but I do think that there's, um, there's promise and you know, in the future, we'll start to see more and more of that. 
at the University of Minnesota where I'm currently a medical student. I'm, I'm also a, a medical student tutor. And the first years were just having their education on inborn errors of metabolism and uh, yeah, genetic testing, whole genome, whole exome sequencing. And something that's actually a consideration, and I think it even popped up on an exam for us last year is cost of these procedures, especially whole genome sequencing. Do you see artificial intelligence potentially lowering the cost of any sort of uh, tests, newborn, newborn screening, uh, genetic testing in any way? Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, an interesting point. You know, we we do have um, in the article we talk about uh, examples of where AI is being used in uh, genomics, in clinical genomics testing, and actually, I think that's one of the most interesting areas because it is a place where more and more labs have really implemented AI-based tools. Um, and you know, the cost of those whole genome tests is due to the, you know, the cost of sequencing is, is quite expensive, but it's come down over time. But a lot of the cost then is related to the human aspects of requiring people to parse through the extremely high number of you know, variants that have to be investigated. Like, are these real? And if they're real, are they associated with human disease? And right now that's a very manual process, which again, this is people with PhDs, MDs, MD PhDs who are doing this kind of work. So they're highly skilled, highly paid individuals um, that are spending a lot of time on this type of analysis. So, you know, implementing AI tools for that type of thing certainly, uh, you know, does seem to be able to uh, think about making things more cost effective. And we're kind of skirting around biochemistry topics. So Dr. McCudden, I'll, I'll ask you, because maybe some people aren't familiar, but can you tell us a little bit more about the work of a clinical biochemist? What are the re research areas that you're focusing on right now? And do you see artificial intelligence or machine learning augmenting your work in the future? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking. So the, the clinical biochemist, uh, that's typically what they call them in Canada. It's also known as a clinical chemist um, in most of the U.S. So it's the same job. And essentially, it's divided into really four things. There's clinical service, which is 90% of your time. Teaching, which is another maybe 20% of your time. And then research, if you're lucky, is another 10 or 20% of your time. And then administration feels like another 30. So you'll notice that that didn't come anywhere close to adding up to 100. So it's, it's quite, quite demanding. And the clinical service, you know, I was giving a presentation an hour or so ago, and, you know, you get paged in the middle of the presentation, you, you got to pause. So there is that demand. Um, the service is, is a lot different than other aspects of medicine. My service, I will almost never get called in in the middle of the night or get called in on a weekend to do something because I don't actually run the instrumentation. We kind of set up systems and it's really a production environment where you have uh, highly trained medical laboratory technologists who are doing the analysis on those samples. So you've got someone who's gonna draw the blood, someone who's gonna receive the blood, and then someone who's gonna either manually test that on, say on a mass spectrometer or on automated machinery where they load that blood on there. So our job is to make sure that every test on that platform, we have the right test, we can produce the right result at the right time on the right patient. That's essentially a way of looking at it. And so we're constantly replacing that equipment. So you might have you know, a multi-million dollar automation line that I know in the next five to 10 years, I'm going to replace with another one because there'll be new technology. There's wear and tear and there's development of things going on. And there's all these different specialties within the laboratory from the really fast things like a, a blood gas where you need that result right away because someone's you know, in, in the OR or unconscious. 
Um, and then you've got things that we call reference tests. So it might be something that I get a sample. And I might even send the sample to Shannon's lab because she's an expert on mass spectrometry. And so, you know, you can send samples all over the world. We send stuff as far away as uh, Europe or other places for some rare uh, autoimmune tests. And uh, in turn, we'll be a, maybe a reference lab or something else. So my lab here, for example, has especially in uh, porphyria testing and is one of the, one of the few in the, the country that does that. So there's this kind of sharing resources where you don't need a, something that happens right away. So we split it up that way. I love that you're talking about this sharing of resources. And as you were saying that, I'm kind of thinking, you know, you're in Canada. Dr. Hammond is in Chicago, if I'm correct. How did you guys come to collaborate on this project? I guess it goes back um, some years. So I trained in the in the U.S. at uh, UNC, and then I was faculty at UNC for a few years. So I got to know it's a small community as as any specialty is, and so you get to know people. We have. Uh, we're both members of the American Association for Clinical Chemistry, and that's our, our professional, main professional body for uh, really for the, the world, if not North America. And so there's meetings in local sections. So we got to know each other through colleagues. And then there was a special group called the Society for Young Clinical Laboratorians. It still carries on. We both uh, sadly aged out of that group, but uh, we worked on that committee together and, uh, you know, got to know each other and, and had our research interests. So we've had a good time doing that. Circling back to your question about machine learning in, in clinical biochemistry. So we, we have machine learning algorithms that are commercially available on some of our platforms. There's um, automated urine microscopy. So you can put a urine sample under there and the machine will actually recognize, okay, that's a cast, that's a cell. And you have people confirm those. And there's also that for uh, immunology, looking at you know, anti-nuclear antigen patterns. Um, you know, is that a speckled pattern? And so there's a few of these examples in there. I think Shannon's right that you'll see that with mass spectrometry, you could do it as far as, you know, looking at quality are all those, that pattern of peaks, is that consistent with a good run? Um, and then helping interpret these things and maybe augmenting the, the ability of you know, either busy or expensive people to get those interpretations done. So another question for you guys. So in your paper, you're mentioning artificial general intelligence and you say, you know, it's either decades away or it's never gonna happen. And you kind of compare artificial general intelligence to, um, let's see, to artificial narrow intelligence or artificial super intelligence. Could you give our listeners a little primer on how you define these different things and then why you think artificial general intelligence is so far away? Yeah. Good question. So I won't pretend to be an expert on on really artificial intelligence of any sort. If you may want to consider inviting someone like uh, Ben Kurtzel or Lex Friedman or someone who really knows what they're doing, or someone from MIT for that answer. But as far as the, you know, from what I've read, the the broad definition of of artificial general intelligence is creating a mind that thinks like a human artificial mind thinks like a human versus artificial narrow intelligence would be creating a specific application. So identifying those cells in urine. So the analogy would be, you know, creating some of that that can play chess versus creating a mind that could go decide to buy a chessboard type of thing. Artificial super intelligence would be artificial and artificial general intelligence, you know, times a thousand, something that can think a thousand times faster or, or is a thousand times smarter than a human. And then you get into the sci-fi realm there because what, what would something like that do? What would they conceive and what would be their motivations? And it's, it's almost inconceivable for, for people like us. Yeah, I will say I have, I have limited experience with artificial intelligence myself, some projects that I've been working on, but something I thought was really interesting in your guys' paper was, uh, and Dr. Heyman, you kind of touched on this a little bit, was, was the 
applications for artificial intelligence in genomics. And I was working on a project in a lab where we were looking at uh, single nucleotide polymorphism changes um, for clinical application purposes, but we had to manually you know, organize into boxes on all these different samples, all the SNPs, and oh my goodness, it took forever. So what infrastructure is available for you know, clinicians or lab PIs in utilizing artificial intelligence for, you know, you have, you start with this task, how do you select a artificial intelligence algorithm or system? And how accessible is that to laboratory technicians, to PIs, to clinicians? Yeah, that, you know, it's a great question. And again, like I said before, it's one of my favorite sort of examples that we have, because I feel like it's really something that people are more and more implementing. So there are, uh, there are a variety of ways where AI is being implemented in clinical uh, genomics labs, but probably one of the greatest is in what is called tertiary analysis software. So this is, you know, after folks do next generation sequencing, there are some scripted parts of a bioinformatics pipeline where, you know, things are realigned and, you know, quality checks are done. But the output of that is this enormous variant call file, right, which for you know, today's contemporary genomic panels, they have hundreds to thousands of genes, or they may even cover the whole exome or the whole genome. So as you increase the number of places you're investigating in a genome, you're bound to come up with more and more variants, right? And so somebody has to decide which of these things are noise versus, you know, actual signal. And for the actual signal, like which of these things are important for clinical disease. And so you know, that is what tertiary analysis software does. Like it, it goes through and it actually applies sort of algorithms that help filter out, you know, is this noise, is this a real variant? And if it's a real variant, it's, you know, some of the ones that are most sophisticated are going out and querying all of these different data sets. So what are all the ba evidence bases? And there's a number of databases that exist that, you know, help people with population allele frequencies, which can help you sort through like, is this a, you know, a benign or a, um, a pathogenic or maybe pathogenic variant. They have, you know, um, several other databases that are associated that associate gene and, uh, and polymorphisms with uh, genetic uh, disorders or even with cancer, like some of them are really specific. And so, you know, and then there's all of the literature that exists. And so humans are trying to synthesize all of this diverse information um, that, you know, can be done with, with, uh, with computers and, and with AI algorithms. So people, you know, we're a smaller lab and we've recently implemented a commercial option for this. So there are open source, people are actively innovating in this, in this area um, and publishing open source tools, but there are also some commercial ones. You know, some of the, the um, so I do think it's, it's accessible to even smaller labs. Um, some of the downsides with uh, some of the, the applications are especially proprietary models because they're black boxes. So you may not know exactly beyond like that this is a support vector machine or we use a deep learning, you know, a neural network type model. You may not really know anything about what this thing is using as features or, you know, how the features are weighted. Um, and, you know, I think people are used to buying software and just implementing it. In the lab, we understand that when we get in a new analyzer, even if it's cleared by FDA, we do our own verification and validation on site with our samples. And so this is really what people need to start doing with AI applications as well. Um, you know, I think there's, 
been this outcry recently, um, you know, that AI has a credibility, AI in medicine has a credibility or reproducibility problem um, because, you know, there was this uh, recent report by Wong et al um, about the epic sepsis model. And, you know, a lot of what that comes down to is, um, you know, what data people are using and the, the local validation uh, processes and how important those are. And that it's really difficult to honestly develop uh, good models that are highly generalizable. <laughs> so it's really a hard task. And so to think that, you know, you can just take a model and plug it in, it's going to work fine without any glitches or to take a model and think you can use it for, you know, translate it over for a different purpose. Um, so, you know, if you're taking something that like Chris was saying has a very narrow kind of scope, and then you think you can kind of broaden it out. Like there are some risks with doing that, that people need to really understand, um, especially when, when using for clinical care. Finally, I would say that some of the other infrastructure needs that are probably more widespread in other industries that are using these type AI and machine learning, but are really new in healthcare would be, you know, moving bioinformatic pipelines to the cloud. Um, so, you know, there's other industries that have been using cloud for AI for many, many years. Uh, hospitals are just now, there's just trends and interest in starting to do that kind of thing. And largely that's because we don't have a lot of expertise internally in, in cloud computing and um, in cloud environments. And there's also been, you know, questions about security and um, patient privacy, like patient data protection sort of issues. Um, also things like deploying, um, deploying pipelines or components of pipelines in um, software containers is kind of, again, new uh, to healthcare using workflow orchestration uh, sort of software is also new to healthcare. But, you know, if you think about the Googles and, and other like very, uh, you know, advanced um, machine places that use a lot of machine learning, uh, they've been doing this for a while. And so we can learn from those other industries in healthcare, but those would be some of the barriers that we're gonna have to overcome. The working with healthcare data is definitely an, uh, an interesting thing to think about. You know, it's a little less benign than the rest of the data that exists in, in the cloud. Um, something interesting I think that you touched on was that a lot of application program interfaces are open source. So like this summer I was working with uh, Cell Profiler and another open source uh, program called Elastic. Uh, but there's a, you mentioned there's a growing sector for paid programs. How, are we moving towards more of a subscription-based model or a paid model? Or do you think there, there are a lot of application program interfaces that will stay open source? I mean, I personally think there will, it will continue to be open source. There's, you know, a great interest in, in open source. Open source has a lot of benefits for reproducibility and transparency, which in this field is extremely important. And I think increasingly being recognized as being important. Um, but, not, you know, using open source stuff requires a higher technical skill, I think, sometimes than just purchasing software as a service where you're relying on the vendor to provide you support and help you with troubleshooting and implementing and things like that. So I think there's there's trade-offs, but there will always be a, a place, I think, for open source um, tools. Yeah, okay. I Chris, do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I think you're gonna see the, the same kind of competition between the private sector and open source as you do now. Picture, uh, if you heard of GP, GPT-3, where you have this incredible, you know, natural language, language processing ability, and then, but there's open source competition, so these things might get gobbled up, but I think you're going to see both of them. As Shannon pointed out, having 
the ability to show all of the data and to show the algorithm is really important because someone might find a limitation that you might not see if it's one of these closed systems. I think it's tempting to be able to buy it off the shelf, but unless it's perfectly robust in every situation, that's not going to work. So I think you'll you'll see both because you see that with you know you know R is an open source statistics programming language, but you also have SAS and SPSS. So I think there's enough room for both and there's enough interest in both. People love commercializing things. So you're going to see that arm always pushing ahead. But at the same time, there's a lot of development in academia and you tend to get more of that open source kind of mindset there. I will say the open source tends to lend itself more towards the flexibility needed for, you know, clinical or or other sort of research. And we're kind of moving into my next question for you guys, which is you've talked a little bit about the future for open source versus you know, commercial AI. What do you think about just the general future of AI in medicine, more specifically in laboratory medicine in the next 10 to 20 years? What are we gonna see? I think what you're gonna see is more of the current trend. So right now there, there's not a ton of machine learning there. Again, image recognition, that's certainly growing here and there are commercial platforms there. You see growth in the interpretation things. So I think over the next 10 to 20 years, you're gonna see a lot of augmentation of these things. So you won't have, you won't necessarily replace someone like Shannon, but you're gonna have a ton of data that's gonna to come to her when she's doing the interpretation. So she might set up these systems to do a lot of the interpretation that might be that kind of final piece and you can provide more information. So you're not just saying, you know, here's the concentration of cortisol, but in context, here's a probability of this or that, or, or you know, helping answer that clinical question. You know, and kind of tying back to the initial artificial general intelligence idea, if you have a bunch of really good narrow AI systems and then another AI, narrow AI on top of that, it's good at kind of parsing and, and directing your question to the right one, you might end up with something that's pretty bright and can answer a lot of questions. I guess one of the other things in our field we talk about a lot is at what point are we not gonna have, you know, big uh, lab systems like we do drawing, you know, five mils of blood for a person. There's a, the holy grail. People really wanna use things smaller than this to, to collect blood or, or, you know, you have these smart devices. Those have turned out to be really difficult problems to get accurate devices. You can kind of get a thumb in the wind. Um, you know, it's really high or really low, but it's possible that there could be some technological breakthrough that could get you there. Thus far, nothing's quite been like um, getting actual blood. So it'll be interesting to see as technology develops there, whether we can, whether, you know, people are going to get away with not having to come in and have them sampled. In which case you probably end up with, in labs like ours, you're doing more and more complicated things that you can't micro-size and then maybe the routine stuff can kind of, kind of you know, go remote. Do you think, so you are talking about a little bit earlier how busy your day is. Do you think AI machine learning has the potential to relieve your workload within your career? So far, so far it's just created more work. Uh, I joke with my, my colleagues and they, they laugh. I spend a lot of time creating an automated thing to do something, and it takes me way longer than it would have done to do it the hard way. But it was way it was more interesting. Um, it's conceivable, um, you know. Over my career, I've seen automation come in, you know, from people were kind of nervous about it to it coming in. So our ability to produce work with really the same number of people has dramatically increased. So I could see that being the same thing. We do a number of interpretive things that could be done faster with machine learning. So I think at some point you'll see some of these things. But if you're trying to do research on the side, you know, 
there's never going to be enough time in the day. So Dr. Heyman, same question to you. What's the future of AI in laboratory medicine? Yeah, so I hope that I'll start with my negative point first. So I hope that there's a real course correction as uh, and we see less and less of like purely garbage papers that are, you know, flooding, flooding the literature today. And and that that happens as people as as people in medicine gain more experience and expertise and, you know, researchers start to apply best practices for reporting and developing machine learning. Um, I agree with Chris. I think that, you know, we have a few applications that have been implemented in um, in lab medicine, but I think that much of many of the instruments we use 10 to 20 years from now and a lot of the middleware software that we use, a lot of it will have AI in it that will be helping us um, automate some decisions that are made, you know, at at the technician or at the director level um, to augment workflows. So, you know, you could, you know, now today, we, we do apply a lot of what even could be considered AI, but is really just a series of like chained uh, logic rules. Um, it's not machine learning, but it's, it's, it is, you know, computer, uh, computer aided uh, decision-making, but, you know, thinking through, like if a result comes through and, and you run an algorithm and it like suggests a probability that this is probably like some kind of spurious or erroneous result, you know, a technologist then looks at that and goes, what should I do? Should I release this through or should I send that sample back, you know, and be repeated? And so you could think about setting up an algorithm in that system that would then just like automatically route based on, you know, some threshold, route it for retesting. And then it comes, you know, back through and then off, maybe if it passes all quality rules, it doesn't even require a human intervention anymore. Um, and so you can think about, you know, less exceptions or some exception handling that goes on. And certainly with the interpretations, um, augmenting uh, what we do is, um, as people looking at results. You know, I, I also hope that in, in 10 to 20 years, you know, back to our article that in addition to the machines that the, the people in medicine rise up um, in all specialties and, and start to become really active participants in the development and the evaluation of machine learning applications, because I really think this is what is gonna make sure that these tools are reproducible, reliable and practical. Like that, you know, just because you can predict something if you can't put that at the place that whoever needs to make that decision is making the decision, it's not gonna be useful, right? So that's great that you have that model that does that. But if you can't put it in the workflow where someone's making the decision, it's basically just a research tool. And so for us to translate from these great innovations from research into um, clinical care, folks who are doing the work, folks who have the clinical expertise need to really be actively involved in the development and evaluation of these tools. I think you guys both have your finger to the pulse. Those seem like very realistic answers. I, I appreciate that. Sometimes we hear things that are a little far out for the future of AI and medicine. But uh, we ask some closing questions of all of our guests. And I have the same questions for you guys, which are, what advice would you give to yourself in your 20s? A lot of, we have a lot of young listeners. So Dr. Heyman, do you want to start? Uh. <laughs> It's a hard question. I love my 20s. I love my 20s. It's a really great time of your life. Um, but what I say, so um, I think as a medical student, I would say I would encourage folks to learn about the, the laboratory, like in your training, um, you know, before you even get to the wards and start, you know, ordering tests, 
familiarize yourself with, with lab medicine and pathology. I think it's a very rewarding career. It's a great place to work. It's a great specialty, but it also um, becomes extremely important for all physicians. Um, and the, you know, the more you know, I think the, the better you can treat patients. That's what we always tell our, our medical students in our lab medicine um, uh, training here. Um, and I would say, even if you don't intend to become a proficient programmer or you know, machine learning developer, I think folks do need to pay attention and learn some of the basics. And I cannot um, underscore the importance of even just learning some basics uh, about programming, building your computational thinking skills is extremely important in this digital world. Um, you know, the way you interact with different uh, medical records, the way you interact with different informat health informatics systems, um, all of that, when you approach it with some computational thinking, I think makes you a more effective user and provides you, I think, with ability to make innovations and make your processes and, and clinical care much better in the future. Dr. McCudden, same question to you. Yeah, so my 20-year-old self, I'm not sure if my 20-year-old self would take my advice, but it would be to, you know, stay curious, uh, listen more, speak less. Um, it's more complicated than you can imagine it is, whatever that, that thing may be. Uh, worry less, and uh, sometimes kindness is, is more important than being right. Very much so. Very sage, fatherly advice. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. McCutton, are you a dad? I'm a dad. I've got three, three beautiful kids. Uh, I could tell that was very dad advice. My dad right? gave me similar advice. <laughs> great. <laughs> well, I'll ask one more question of you both. Um, any advice for students interested in this area of work, whether it be laboratory medicine, pathology, or just artificial intelligence in medicine? Dr. Oh, maybe my answer to the 20 year old self was better for that question. <laughs> um, I don't know, Chris, what do you think? Advice for the, the medical student going into it or students interested in the area? Well, I guess having a good mentor is great. If you can find someone who has, has kind of done some of this stuff, who's willing to mentor you, you'd be in great shape. If not, if you can find a colleague who, who's interested too, that can really accelerate a lot of the things you do. And you know, going through the same journey with someone who knows what it's like to be at your career stage and you can commiserate with or laugh with can be a lot of fun. And then you're not alone. You know, I used to, as a, as a graduate student, wonder, you know, how do you, how did you come up with these incredible collaborators? You know, your, your PO have these world-class people they're working with. And it turns out you just stay in the field. And, and over time, these people are just your friends, you know, they're vice chair of, of computational, whatever. And, and they're, they're the world experts and you've just kind of grown up working with them. So it's, it's kind of a neat thing. So find a colleague, find a mentor. That's fantastic advice. And with that, thank you both so much for joining us today. Any last words of wisdom for our listeners? I guess I would say, you know, if, if people are interested in this, I think one of the best things to do there, is, as Chris was mentioning before, the information is so accessible today. Um, you know, there's a lot of really great tutorials. And I think you can go down all these rabbit holes and try to learn everything and read everything. But honestly, what I think builds skills the fastest is to find something you're interested in. And whether if that's medicine, you know, a medicine problem, that's fine. But if it's like you want to track your Peloton stats and predict your output, you know, like the next time you take a 30 minute ride, 
do that. That's of interest to you. And it's just great to get working with data and trying stuff out. And you learn so much just by doing, and you'll be more motivated to do something difficult if it's something you're particularly passionate about. Yeah, I guess I've got one. And it, it might be ironic given the title of the podcast, but you don't need a machine learning algorithm for everything. Um, just because you have a, a nice hammer, you know, maybe you just need something really simple. Maybe you just need a, a box plot or a simple regression to get to the answer. So don't overcomplicate things. With that, Dr. Heyman, Dr. McCudden, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Pleasure. you. Thanks for having us on.